On the new podcast, American Criminal, you'll learn about the fraud, theft, and murder that marks the dark side of the American dream. Like the Menendez murders, was it two greedy kids who killed their parents for money, or is there more? Listen to American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. Ray Coob here on the podcast with my pal Marcus. We're going to have an adventure today. I'm excited for this adventure because it takes on a hue or a shade or a color. Yes. Hey, but before we get started, we're talking all about Deep Purple. Can we raise a glass? This is two years that we have been on the Pantheon Podcast Network. Look, as we both have our Imbalance History of Rock and Roll mugs. Yes. And uh, two years ago, we debuted on the network with uh, Bruce's 70th birthday in an episode about that kid from Freehold. And all I could say is that for the last couple of years, it's been a lot of fun. We've expanded our audience. We've become worldwide. I guess, you know? Yeah, we have. We are, thanks to Pantheon, on platforms all over the world. And people who like music are finding the music podcasts in the Pantheon Network. And we're one of them that people are digging. Thank you. Thanks to Christian Swain, the rock and roll archaeologist, and Peter Ferrioli, the Pantheon partners that have really grown the network and for bringing us in two years ago. And as we started our dig into Deep Purple to get into this week's episode, we got a bombshell dropped on us just yesterday, Marcus, and that is that it seems that the band is about to put out a new album and they've set up this uh, website, turningtocrime.com, and it redirects you to a page. There's a countdown, and uh, they're wondering if Turning to Crime is going to be the name of the new album from Deep Purple. I'm going to guess yes, because it just makes Cause sense. Because there's mug shots. There's mocked up <laughs> mug shots. These guys must have taken their shittiest COVID pictures, put them in black and white up against a wall. And use them as uh, fake mug shots for what I guess will be the album art. And, you know, a lot of the credit they've given uh, to the fun they're having with music on the last few. Bob Ezra, he's the, uh, the secret sauce in what makes Deep Purple go these days. When you have somebody that great behind you and monitoring and keeping you in line and working with you, it helps. He's an essence capturer and really great at it. Before we jump into our subject for today, Deep Purple... I got an email from Mark Salver from Red Deer, Alberta, checking in regarding our uh, visit from Andre Gardner on the Beatles Go to the Movies episode. He says, hey, buds, another really fun, relatable episode. Andre sounds like a riot. I will definitely be exploring his show. Great. That's good to know. Uh, My first Beatle exposure was the Jack Parr show previous to Sullivan, which I never heard anything about. Uh, He also says, had a friend whose father was a promo guy for Capital EMI. I heard the promo copy to the first Beatle North American album probably six months before release. You know, Sauber. (laughs) It was enough the Beatles were your first show. Hendrix was your number five. And then you throw this stuff into the mix. Oh, my goodness. Uh, an experienced rock and roll traveler, our pal Mark, who was with us during Listener Episode Month, which I think we'll probably do it again. What do you think? I think we have to do it again. It was a lot of fun. And we love the suggestions for show ideas to keep coming because there's so much history to cover. Every kid in the known universe gets a guitar. They learn one of three riffs to start. 
and usually the first one is Smoke on the Water, right? Deep Purple's most famous song and riff. in the beginning <laughs> introduction of my own composition yeah well no offense but smoke on the water doesn't begin with crap on the water <laughs> my apologies okay let's take it from the top one two three four the play date was a good idea yeah Let's see how Grandma likes her prodigy after he sponges up our sponge. Marcus, what do you think would be the number of friends you know who play guitar who didn't start with this riff? Zero? I would have to say the big goose egg for sure. But the reason we're here isn't just because of smoke on the water today, buddy. We're here because of the amazing contribution that Deep Purple has made through the decades and now the centuries to the history of rock and roll dating back to their earliest days and through all the mocks. Do you know any other band that had Mach 1, 2, 3, 4 as versions of the band lineup? (laughs) Did anybody else ever need it? No, maybe the Yardbirds are the only one who needs something like that besides them. But other than that, this band really has this super wide tree. Big bass, like, you know, the kind of tree that's been around since Ben Franklin walked the earth. And it's the textures and the flavors all the way through. There's a consistency. You know, you and I do something funny no matter what the band is. The the few days before we do an episode, we dig deep into their music. And I found sonic similarities in Come Taste the Band, which is the album they make right before the breakup, that you would hear in any of the class, more classic-sounding albums. Uh, there's something that happened that we're going to explore when we go through the albums. Uh, where they recreated that famous Mach 2 vocal sound on Machs 3 and 4, I guess you'd have to say. Even though they had the lineup changes or they were deep purple in different Machs, they still had a consistency where they wrote good songs. They were excellent live. Their live show was known in those early days as being spectacular. In 1972, the Guinness Book of World Records made them the loudest band in the world. It didn't last forever, but for that (laughs) moment, they had stacked it and racked it and kicked everybody's eardrums into the middle of next week. Mr. Guinness put his hand up and said, yes, they're loudest. (laughs) And I'll tell you what, that was quite a feat that some of the newer, louder, heavier bands wanted to beat. And as we have seen over the years, you and I, over the many shows, bands like ACDC and Motorhead and so many others have just brought the loudness like nobody. And the basis of that tree that we're talking about really is three guys. Ian Pace has been in every form of Deep Purple. And until he departed, Richie Blackmore was part of that. John Lord, the great John Lord, was part of that. These were the guys who got together with Rod Evans and Nick Simper to start this band and have hit records. Just not enough 
in a span that would satisfy the band members and the record company and all the other people who were involved. The money changers that weren't satisfied with what was going on after those first couple records. But the music was good. Well, as we've learned in our adventures, Marcus, there are some pretty creative names out there in rock in the 60s. And uh, Deep Purple kind of pulled together from a few bands that had funky sounding names like Roundabout, which would later become a Yes song. John Lord and Nick Simper had played together in a group called the Flower Pot Men. I don't know anything about them. And uh, there was another band called Maze that had had uh, Evans, Blackmore, and Pace. So they all kind of pulled together, and then they changed their name to Deep Purple after a song of the same name. Simple as that. And their first album was even called Shades of Deep Purple with the uh, obligatory uh, purple cover. From that came the first song I ever heard from them. It was called Hush. Thought I heard her calling my name now Hush, hush She broke my heart but I love her just the same now Hush, hush I thought I heard her calling my name now Hush, hush I need her loving and I'm not to blame now Still gets played on classic rock stations, coast to coast, all over the world. Uh, Not an original song written by them, written by the great Joe South. And some of the stuff that was their original material on that first album, uh, not so great. But two other covers, right? Yes, they had the cover of The Beatles' Help, a classic Lennon-McCartney song. They also had Hey Joe, which Jimi Hendrix did, which was a Billy Roberts song. And in kind of the same way that Jimi had covered the song from a previous version, they kind of covered it off of Jimi. I remember listening to Hush, either Babysitter, Radio, or something like that as a young kid and being blown away by what I heard. It was one of those songs that I had not heard anything like it at that point. So as was happening when a new band that everybody liked put out another new record, everybody flocked to it, and the next one from Deep Purple was Kentucky Woman. And I love I don't know, man. I was like a little kid. All I knew is that I thought that Kentucky Woman song was really great. Those Deep Purple guys, man, they make great music. And then I found out it was a Neil Diamond song. Yeah. <laughs> you look at the credits on the 45, yeah. you go, N Diamond? Like Neil Diamond? Oh, yeah. And my parents used to listen to Neil Diamond a lot, so I'm much more familiar with the Kentucky Woman of the Neil Diamond version. And I listened to the Deep Purple version, and it was okay. It wasn't anything great. I think they had other songs, like River Deep, Mountain High, was I liked a little bit more, and I felt uh-huh. like that showed also the direction they were heading in as they were growing and growing as both songwriters and bands. 
that was going on against the background of cover songs as the focus of their records and it really wasn't progressing enough for the uh, for the grown-ups in the room for the people who were running things and including some of the members of the band whatever the internal chemistry was on it and both Rod Evans and Nick Simper both leave the band and that's when they form the uh, the Mach 2 version after the 4th of July 1969 departure, how about that? That's, uh, I mean, they're not an American band, but that's kind of funny, right? Because mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, what else was going on around then? In Hyde Park, uh, the Stones were doing their show to pay tribute to Brian Jones, who had just died. This is all in the wake of that. And in comes Ian Gillen, who had been in uh, Jesus Christ Superstar, right? I only want to say If there is a way Take this cup away from me For I don't want to taste its poison Feel it burn me I have changed I'm not as sure And Roger Glover both veteran guys who had had done stuff and and been around, so they come in, and this new Mach 2 version of the band is formed. And their first album is Deep Purple and Rock with the beautiful mock-up of all five of them on Mount Rushmore, which I thought was pretty cool. Now, realize, Marcus, at this point, I was still kind of a 45 guy. So for me, trying to find out what songs were on which albums was hard for me because I didn't have the albums to relate to. You know what I'm saying? And that first album, you know, uh, really has them just focusing on being an original band. And they don't really have a breakout from this album. No, they had two singles, uh, Speed King and Black Knight. And the other songs, there were three songs on there that were over seven minutes, Hard Lovin' Man, Flight of the Rat, and Child in Time. And very few radio stations were going to play those as singles at that time, even though AOR would play some of the longer songs. And what they were doing was blending this new heavy rock and progressive rock in both form and in style, uh, playing things out. Um, kind of funny because at the same time a lot of that was going on on the west coast in California with groups like the Grateful Dead and all this is kind of like stretching it out and feeling all the music and it brings it all the way around to Fireball where they seem to have gotten everything into gear and Strange Kind of Woman starts to change the way that radio is receiving them in mass. I forgot about this song until we started getting prepped for this recording and I was like man That jump between the last album and this shows so much growth in the band. Even though I think at this point, Richie Blackmore had a lot more of the control of the band at that time. I think Mm -hmm. John Lord was the backbone of the band as far as the sound goes. And I think he's really the driving force of this band. He and Ian Pace really are together. Um, you always looked at the lead guitar player, and I think Blackmore thought, like, hey, this is my band. I'm the guitar player. Mm-hmm. Singers think, oh, this is my band. I'm the singer. And really, it was John Lord's band and Ian Pace's band. And not only because they were there at the beginning and all the way through until Lord re- would retire, but because they were the ones who stayed. They, 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 they had the commitment to it all the way through. Mm-hmm. God bless them both, you know? 
Absolutely. And, well, if you listen to the guitar work of Richie Blackmore, it is absolutely fantastic. His playing is beautiful throughout all of these albums. His sound complements and really... It gives the sound depth. It gives the songs an extra layer of depth where it's not highlighted like with Van Halen where you have Eddie's mm-hmm. guitar just highlighting the daylights out of that band. Richie Blackmore complements the driving force of Ian and John Lord. I agree. You know what else happened between Deep Purple and Rock and Fireball? Martin Birch stepped up in his role. And I think that that had everything to do with them getting their shit together. I mean, they were listed as the producer inside the studio, inside getting things done. Birch becomes more and more important. And by the time they get to Machine Head, it's basically him and the band. There's no other mixers. There's no other producers. It's just them. And look what they are able to do, Marcus. Listening to this album from front to back was an experience again even now because of how fantastic it is Highway Star is what it opens with and it is an ass kicker an amazing ride yes. it starts right there yes and and it just goes from there all the way through there's not a bad note on the album at any point in this album it is fantastic all the way through get zero resistance argument or anything other than agreement and high praise shared with rolling stone writer lester bangs who praised those songs a highway star and space truck and very lovely with the words in between those two deep purple classic lies nothing but good hard sucking music although some of the lyrics may leave a bit to be desired always had to take a shot right he also said I do know that this very banality is half the fun of rock and roll, and I am confident that I will love the next five Deep Purple albums madly, so long as they sound exactly like these last three. And that's kind of what I'm feeling, too. Once Gillen gets in there, they get better at it. They perfect it on Machine Head, man. You know what else really helped them uh, right around this time? They went to Japan, and uh, they recorded at Festival Hall in Osaka and at the Budokan. But it isn't called Deep Purple Live at Budokan. It's called Made in Japan. And it came out at the end of 72. This became one of those eight tracks stuck in all the car decks. When everybody was out cruising, they'd either have a cassette or an eight track of Made in Japan. Because all the songs were there, the killer versions in a lot of ways that those of us who grew up at that time as teenagers remember as our favorites because of the solo or the extended jams, you know? Mm-hmm. And it's one of those outstanding live albums that really, I think, set the standard for other bands who wanted to record live albums. In some ways, I really want to know, Mark, is how much of it was done absolutely live and how much of it was overdubbed because it set the stage for a lot of the live albums that would come along, like you said, in the next few years that would be more open to a wide audience because live albums had advanced so far. You're right. I mean, the Dolby sound system in the movies and the fact that they were able to add that to cassettes. I remember getting a cassette deck with Dolby and being so excited and, 
you not are. really even fully understanding it as a kid, but being like, oh my God, this is Dolby. This is the best ever. We got the best sound. Things were going incredibly well for Deep Purple. Albums and tours. Something was bound to go wrong, right? Well, it did. And in October 72, Gillen, feeling the tensions rising inside the band, uh, decides that he's going to leave. He tells the band at the end of this tour, I'm done. And what I've been able to gather from all the digging I've been doing, Marcus, is that is the kernel of the problem with the Mach 2 unit. A disagreement about direction and performance and a lot of other issues. And when the band is the producer and there's two people really at odds over these things, it can really lead to problems. And it does. Roger Glover says, well, I'm with him. And he leaves with Gillen. So they wrapped it up for good in Japan. And uh, that's the end of Mark II. Maybe forever, at least at that point. And those of us who love that band at that time were pretty pissed off. That's all I'm going to say. I was only six or seven when all of that went down, so I don't really remember any of it. I don't remember the transition to David Coverdale and White Snake and all of that happening. I just remember Deep Purple as Deep Purple, and then in the 80s, White Snake happening. So do you remember this, and what kind of talk was there in the music world? Well, when two of your guys leave at the same time, it's going to cause a problem. There's a ton of the fans that felt like I did, which was the band broke up. That's it. Deep Purple's over. Not knowing that work was underway to keep it going. I didn't know who Glenn Hughes was or who Trapeze was, and surely nobody had heard of David Coverdale. But the thing that I learned that really surprised the shit out of me when we were setting this thing up was that when Hughes had heard about joining uh, the band, he had been pitched the idea that Paul Rogers, who was, of course, a member of Free, had recently broken up, and that he was looking for a band, that he was going to be the other voice, not Coverdale. Of course, Hughes was also a bass player, so he figured he was going to be bass and harmony to Paul Rogers. And he decided to focus on forming his new band, Bad Company. If you think about it, that's right around the time when John Paul Jones left Led Zeppelin for a little while and said he wasn't coming back, and Bad Company got the call to go do your first record at Headley Grange right now. So their whole thing got moved up. And I wonder what would have happened to Bad Company if that hadn't happened with John Paul Jones as they're looking for a new singer in Deep Purple. I mean, his voice, think about him in Deep Purple. He might never have left. Wow. They bring in this kid, David Coverdale, right? Pretty good set of pipes. That's all I'm going to say. The first time you hear them, those first few albums with him on it are really great stuff. They really are. And the way that he and Glenn Hughes blend together explains why it was so important to everyone in the fold to include them when they were inducted finally into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. So at this point, it's pretty much Richie Blackmore's band, even though Lord and Pace are kind of, you know, driving, right? And you bring in... Hughes and you bring in Coverdale and they go forward. All 
want to say is there's some really good music in there on Burn and Stormbringer. These are really good albums that have really good songs. In fact, I went back and listened to Come Taste the Band because I play a couple of those songs on my syndicated show all the time. And that's actually a pretty good record. It's Tommy Bolin, right? Yeah, Tommy Bolin joined at one point as well. When I was learning about that, I was like, holy cow. And that would be the last album to have Coverdale on it, and Tommy's on it. It's the only record that he's on. I just discovered, this is one of those, what moments. When Mm -hmm. I'm doing all this, I'm digging into Tommy. Of course, he would famously go on, do a record or two, and then he would die. Uh, because of multiple drug overdoses at the same time and oh at the end of the 70s. Oh, yeah. It was they, the toxicology report must have been horrible. But that was really a much better album than I gave it initial credit for in my memory. You know, uh, songs like Getting Tighter and Coming Home. But uh, again, Martin Birch in there pulling the whole thing together. Uh, he's about to launch Iron Maiden's Voyage as well. So, dude, it's a crazy trip up to this point don't you think dude it's insane all these talented musicians who were really good at their craft and have spent a lot of time working on their talents coming together and playing and then it seems that you see these ego battles not in i'm greater than you but more in this is the direction i want the music to go right this is the direction i want the music to go and i think that's where the ego battles happen versus the competitive aspect of i'm better than you I am blown away at how consistent, even though the lineup changes happened the way they did with Deep Purple, their music stayed consistently fantastic. And in my view of that little uh, push me, pull you, I kind of side with Gillen um, because a singer knows what they can sing. A player, a really great guitar player can play anything. A good guitar player plays what they really can play well. And this battle with Gillen went on. After all this, after the uh, the come taste the band and all that stuff, that's it. The band's done. Now they're actually done, right? They're not coming back. Deep Purple has broken up. David Coverdale goes on to do two solo albums, one of which contains a song called White Snake. Two, two words. Two words. White Snake. And that's when Bernie Marsden starts to come into the picture and Mickey Moody becomes part of the songwriting mix. Since Deep Purple took a break, what do you say we take a break? But first, one thing that's going to make you go, what? Bring it on. Did you know that Ian Pace is married and has three children, James, Emmy, and Callie? His wife, Jackie, is the twin sister of the late John Lord Vicky. What? They were married to twin sisters. Oh my goodness, I had no idea. Back on the Deep Purple attack when the band reunites next on the Imbalance History of Rock and Roll. Ah, the taste of Crooked Eye. It's like coming home for the holidays, man. And by the way, it'll be the holidays before you know it, Marcus. Getting into the fall season, and so the brews change 
and some different things appear on the board. Hey, there's a lot going on, and as always, the best way to find out what's happening at the brewery location in Hapro is on their Facebook. But one thing you know is there's the Blues Jam every Wednesday night hosted by the Crooked Soul Band. And I've been noticing a lot of new names and a lot of new acts appearing recently at Crooked Eye. So go in and see who's playing this weekend. And don't forget, if you're in Delco, Jamie's House of Music is a place where you can get Crooked Eye beers as well. Fresh brews, PA spirits, and wine, as well as all the fun of the music at both Jamie's House of Music and at the brewery location in Hatboro. Crooked Eye Brewery, right in the heart of Hatboro, pouring the cure for what ails you since 2014. Hey, Pantheon listeners, Christian Swain here. You caught me just finishing up some editing on Getting Real with John and Beth. I want to share my first experience with Factor Meals for you. I think you'll find this interesting because I bet the same thing happens to you. I had just received my first shipment from Factor Meals the other day, and I was excited to try one of the prepared restaurant-quality meals for myself. Anyway, I was working away and noticed it was very late, and it was my night to make dinner. I jumped up and headed to the kitchen, went to grab the ingredients for the dish I was going to make, and realized I was missing a prime ingredient. Well, I could make a run to the store, or I could make one of my new factor meals. (laughs) Actually, the choice was easy. I grabbed a cavatappi, an Italian-style pork ragu with garlic broccoli, heated the oven per instructions, and minutes later was enjoying a very delicious, nutritious, and dietitian approved meal. It really was everything Factor Meals said it would be. No prep, no mess meals. Factor Meals are 100% ready to heat and eat. Take it from me and head to factormeals.com slash pantheon50 and use the code pantheon50 to get 50% off. That's factormeals.com slash pantheon50 and use the code pantheon50 to get 50% off. It's after the break on the Imbalance History of Rock and Roll, but we're still in the middle of Deep Purple's eight-year breakup. During that time, their members were part of uh, bands named Gillen, I guess that was the Ian faction, Whitesnake, and Rainbow, which uh, Richie Blackmore formed and brought in Dio. And, of course, Ronnie would go off and form his own band, and he would interact with Blackmore at the beginning stages of Dio as well. So this is where they are for a long time, and um, word starts to get around. Early in my time at MMR, the Deep Purple's coming back. The Mach 2 lineup. I almost shit myself. Now, when you heard that, did you hear it through industry buzz, or did you hear it through the trades and journalists who were hinting at it? Okay, I was DeBella's intern at that point. And he was on the phone with somebody and he got off the phone and he was all excited. And I said, what's going on? And he says, deep purple's getting back together for real. And I went, what? (laughs) 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 And that's when they signed with polygram and uh, released uh, perfect strangers, which is a great title for a reunion album (laughs) uh, on mercury records. Uh, they would do some touring there. I later found out that uh, DeBella and Glover were pretty tight through meeting Glover at J.C. Dobbs on South Street. 
So I'm sitting at the bar and a guy taps me on the shoulder and says, hey, is John DeBella here? And he had been there earlier but had left. And I said, no, nah, you just missed him. He left. And he says, oh, he says uh, we're supposed to be on his show tomorrow morning. I said, oh, really? I said, hi, I'm Ray. I work in promotions. And he says, Roger Glover. And it's at that moment that I look up and standing behind him, dressed in his pajama pants, T-shirt, a bathrobe, and a shower cap, is Ian Gillen. I should be <laughs> not. It's too bad they didn't have cell phone cameras at that time. Holy and little cow. and little Ian was with him too, Ian Pace. So the three of them are out on South Street and Gillian's walking around in a fucking bathrobe like Jin Giganti, right? Oh my oh god. Oh my god. <laughs> so we chit chatted for a bit and they were on the next morning. I think they played uh, the next night. And uh, I was just like blown away. Like somebody walked away and go, Who's those guys? You know, like a Philly thing. I go, fucking deep purple. And everybody, what? What an amazing story. Well, that's the return of the Mark II lineup. And I saw them on that tour. That was the first time I actually got to see them, too. And then they did House of Blue Lights in 87 and a uh, live album, Nobody's Perfect. And then, of course, Gillen's out because those two, I swear, they must have been like, couldn't get along. I don't, I can't imagine working with somebody all the time where you can't work things through, especially in a creative thing. It's tough, right? So Blackmore says, I'll show him. I'm going to go get Jimmy Jameson. You know, he's the guy who was singer for Survivor. And that didn't work out because <laughs> the Scotty brothers weren't letting him out of his contract. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Them contracts tie you up. Here's the list of people they tried out. And this is no secret. This is well-known knowledge. But I didn't realize that they had tried out Brian Howe, who would later be in Bad Company. Doug Panic, my buddy from King's X. Jimmy Barnes. You remember Jimmy Barnes? Yeah. And John Farnham from Little River Band. What? What? And uh, it ends up being Joe Lynn Turner, who had been in Rainbow for a bit. And that's the Joe Lynn Turner era of Deep Purple. Slaves and Masters. Uh, with the rest of the uh, Mark II lineup, I guess. Wow. He did the tour. Guys didn't like it. They kind of pushed him back out. They wanted Ian back in for the for the big 25th anniversary of the band. And so the battle rages on, represents that in 1993. <laughs> and it couldn't have been more aptly titled. The battle raged on, and I think they both were spinning out of control. And at one point, Blackmore walks out in the middle of the tour. Over what? I don't know. And does it really matter no. all these years later? I mean, like, you know, it was over something stupid, you know, it had to be. Couldn't have been anything <laughs> consequential. You know who came to the rescue? The Silver Surfer, Joe Satriani. Seriously, the Silver Surfer saved the day? He was asked to join the band for good, but he had his own plan. 
which I'm glad he stuck to, but he almost became the next guy in Deep Purple after Blackmore left, and that job fell to the one and only Steve Morse, who was in uh, Dixie Dregs and had been in Kansas and was with Deep Purple and has been with them ever since. And that's the lineup. I guess, what do you call this now? Mach 7? 8? Mach 7. <laughs> 7. And that's when I really walk into the picture. They were at the end of the Perpendicular Tour. Get it? Perp. Endicular. <laughs> and uh, uh, they were on CMC, and they were at the end of that tour, and uh, that was the follow-up to their um, their orchestra album. Uh, they also did an album that I was in the middle of, helped to promote the radio, the band, and, uh, or as we always called it, a band on. There's a joke, inside jokes about stuff, you know, on a, on a label. A band on in 1998. If they had been able to get over and tour more, I think Deep Purple would have re-emerged as one of the preeminent bands that they are. And I don't know that that contributed to the way they were treated as far as being, you know, not led into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame soon enough. We'll just leave it at that about the hall. But that's what happens, man. And things start to slow down. Guys start to get older. You know, uh, they started doing the long goodbye tour. Ian has a heart issue. I think it was a heart issue. Now, I don't know what this means, but they call it a transient ischemic attack or a mini stroke. And they had to, you know, cancel shows and he had obviously, you know, uh, take a rest. And they said there was no permanent damage or anything too serious. And he has been able to play since then. Um, but, uh, you know, we worry about our heroes when they get to be, you know, in, into their seventies and all. But I wanted to tell you something that I, I found out just the other day, John Lord decided he was going to retire before he got sick and passed. And Don Airy, uh, had been, um, in and out. He'd helped them and been around them and was good. A good friend already knew everything and everybody felt right. So when Lord decided that he was going to retire, he wanted to make sure he didn't have any second thoughts about it. So as a living will, I guess, he gave or willed his Hammond organ that he used on all those shows and all those records to Don Airy, who is still to this day the keyboard player of record in Deep Purple. So while John Lord has left this mortal coil, his fucking Hammond goes on stage wherever Deep Purple is and is plugged in wherever they go to record. And I fucking love that. Oh, my goodness. John Lord is to Deep Purple as Ray was to the Moody Blues. Some people that just quietly do the essential work. But at least he took some time to enjoy life after retirement. Friend of mine just retired, Marcus. Friends, we grew up on the same street, and it always leads to friends exchanging thoughts on this stuff. And uh, I said, ah, I've got a few years left I want to do. He says, yeah, you've got more than a few good years left in you, but don't wait too long. That's what people tend to do. We tend to want to do stuff that we love because it doesn't feel like work. That's what these guys tried to do and have tried to do. And John was smart enough to say, you know what? Me and the hot twin are going to go have some fun for a few years while we still can. Don't forget that part of your outlook on life. Take a lesson from Deep Purple, <laughs> if you must. You know a guy played with them once? Do you know who J Jordan Rudis is? No, who's Jordan? 
I met Jordan when he was touring with the latest incarnation of Dream Theater. And he's also part of uh, Portnoy's uh, Liquid Tension Experiment. And he played one show with them. He filled in because Aerie was sick or couldn't make it. No, it was his daughter's wedding, I think. So they needed somebody. And that was back in March of 2020. Go to their Wikipedia page and you want to get an idea of all the members of Deep Purple and all the different marks that we're joking about. They have Mark 1, Mark 2, Mark 2A, uh, not to be confused with Etouffee, uh, Mark 3, Mark 4, Mark 2B, or not to be, <laughs> Mark 5, Mark 2C, Mark 6, 6, 7, and 8, which is uh, the lineup we have now, which is really, you're looking at that Mark 2 lineup with Don Airy and Steve Morse. By the way, they've now done five records together since uh, 2003 and may have a sixth album, which we were talking about earlier in the podcast. Uh, we're getting out this week that they've got a countdown running uh, to uh, what everyone is hoping and expecting to be a new album. The website is turningtocrime.com. Uh, go check it out and keep up on uh, the countdown to new music from Deep Purple, we hope, right? I'm excited for new music from Deep Purple. It could be the name of a song. It could be the name of an album. We do not know yet. We know it's something musical. That we can tell you. <laughs> We're sitting here uh, heading into fall 2021, and they have a plan to tour in Europe. Looks like uh, late May, starting in Istanbul, Turkey. Uh, Deep Purple looking to tour in 2022. Like a lot of bands, they've kind of decided to just sit it out. They've got some rescheduled shows for you uh, in Italy and in France and Norway and uh, Germany. These are a lot of those dates that got postponed because of COVID are scheduled into the summer next year. So uh, check your tickets and check your promoters if you're looking at that and you're looking to get those Deep Purple shows. There's so many great songs and so many great albums that change changed the, the era and was part of the argument for the inclusion in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame right from the very damn beginning of the thing. One of the things I think is underappreciated is the involvement of Martin Birch. It uh, really helped them and obviously uh, the album that is the, the centerpiece of Deep Purple's life. Corporated in Montreux famously, Smoke on the Water written because of the fire at the casino. Mm -hmm. Frank Zappa makes it into a Deep Purple song, right? That was kind of a cool thing. Yeah. And so they had to make a plan B, and they set up with the Rolling Stones truck waiting just outside, right? Found a spot at the Grand Hotel, which is also immortalized in the song. They talk about the Montreux Casino where the, where the fire happened, some stupid with a flare gun, right? Yeah. Burn the place to the ground. And it was, the, the imagery on that was so strong. And for young kids, we were like, this just happened. They recorded it, made an album, and sent it out. By the way, that Christmas was my full conversion 
to an album kit is Deep Purple's uh, Machine Head and both of my favorite Alice Cooper albums, uh, Love It to Death and Killer and a bunch of others, Creedence Clearwater, all under the tree. I stopped looking at singles when I went to the record store after that. All I wanted was albums. Deep Purple was part of that for me. I got lucky that I had friends who had older brothers and sisters that liked Deep Purple, and we would hear them when we would be at their houses, and then, of course, those older brothers and sisters would tell us about these bands so that when we heard them on the radio stations, we were familiar with it and had an idea of what it was. And, of course, the young kids on guitar, all of them, played Smoke on the Water. When did, when were you at a friend's house listening to a brother's copy? When did you hear the full album, and what did you think of all the other songs? I would say the first time I heard it was probably 82, 83. I was a freshman or sophomore in high school. We were listening to mostly albums. I was more on the alternative punk end, and I had a few friends who right, were on the right. rock end who, who also would play Rush albums and Triumph albums and albums like that. But I always was a fan of Van Halen for me, but I remember listening to Deep Purple and not believing what I was hearing on the turntable or through the speakers because it had such a big, deep sound. The keyboards were so prominent. The album. I say John Lord was the first heavy metal keyboard player. He was yes. the first one who played heavy. Oh, Just yeah. the way he touched stuff. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Some of those, uh, yeah, some of those dark goth cartoons have to be influenced by John Lord following his music. Seriously, some of those old keyboard skits. I mean, he played big, heavy sounds, and some of them could be taken as scary or mixed into scary sounds oh, yeah. because oh, of yeah. the depth of them. But boy, were they powerful, and boy, do they move you to the core. They were part of the heavy music movement. Nobody knew what to call it. It was just scaring the shit out of parents from coast to coast and overseas all around the world as the music spread. The music of Deep Purple, of Iron Butterfly, Black Sabbath, Led Zeppelin, they were the base, the core, that started a noise that continues today in the 21st century. It's still there. The heavy sound. That's what Deep Purple was all about, man. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> you know, and while Deep Purple stands there next to those other icons in heavy music, it's who they influenced that it probably helps to get him into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, but it took too long. Way too long. They should have been in right away because of their influence from the get-go. They are one of the early pioneers. They should have been in at the beginning. The bands that are clearly seen as influenced by Deep Purple and their sound came to the band's aid. They came vocally to their rescue and campaigned in some cases to make it happen. And it should have happened a lot sooner. And in true Deep Purple form, they kind of blasted all the pieces in regards to their induction when it happens in 2016. Uh, Ian Gillen basically says, you know, Hughes can't come, Coverdale can't come, and Evans and Blackmore, they can't play with us on stage, and they're not in the current living, breathing band and all this stuff. And five of the uh, seven living members showed up. Obviously, John Lord couldn't be there. And not unlike Ray Thomas and the Moody Blues, it pissed me off that John couldn't be there, that he should 
should have been and wasn't there. These are the reasons why, if it seems like we get on our soapbox and bitch at the rock hall about timeliness, that we are. Vicky did go and accept on his behalf at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Those guys were awesome. They were part of that dazed and confused generation that we often joke about on the podcast. <laughs> They're part of the soundtrack of my life and countless millions. They are Deep Purple and they're special to me and I know they mean the world to you. They're one of those bands that rock and roll wouldn't be where it is today if it weren't for bands like Deep Purple. Other stuff other people know that we don't or we didn't learn. Or maybe we didn't have time to mention it all. Did I mention Bruce Payne? He was the manager of Deep Purple when I worked with him and managed him for a long time. I don't know how he's doing these days, but I had to mention him because he did a lot of nice things to make stuff happen for the band when I was working with him back then at CMC and Sanctuary. So uh, thanks to everybody in uh, their circle for always being nice people. I never met Blackmore, but I understand that it didn't meet him, that he was a nice enough guy. Uh, thank you for all the music and all the different mock versions that you gave us. Uh, there's always great music that came out, so thank you for that. And uh, if you have any more info, or if you are Bruce Payne and you want to talk more about Deep Purple, you can reach out to us at our email, imbalancehistory at gmail.com, or find us on Facebook, Imbalance History of Rock and Roll, on social media, on Twitter, at Imbalance Histo. And on Instagram at The Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll. Deep purple. Deep subject. Did you have fun? I had a royal purple blast. Is that a strain from one of the growers that I haven't heard yet? <laughs> no, that's that's great punch. <laughs> uh, that's good too. Oh, here's come the here come the garlic cookies. All right, let's roll on out of here till the next time. I'm Ray Coop. I'm Marcus Goldman. And this has been Deep Purple on the Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll. What would you do to achieve the American dream? The big house, the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would they shop? Would they shop? Would you kill? Yes. <laughs> My mom and dad. My mom and my dad. From Airship. The studio behind American Scandal comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, The Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts 
or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.